loudly, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the very, very late 70s, uh, my family and I had some uh, family friends at the church where we were going. And uh, they got along well most of the time, but there was this tension between the father and the 16-year-old son. The 16-year-old son had really, really, really long hair. And uh, his father was not blessed by that. And the 16-year-old son uh, really wanted his driver's license. And so came down, you know where this is going. It came down, the father was like, you get a haircut, you get a license. And the son just just kicked against this. For months and months this went on. Finally, the son thought he had the trump card. So he saunters in the kitchen one day. He says, Dad, Jesus had long hair. <laughs> and the dad said, he, maybe he did, but I know for sure that he did not have a driver's license. <laughs> right? That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd share that with you. Yeah. I'm not going to try to segue that one in. Um, Back in the summer of 1985, one of my all-time favorite movies came out, a movie I paid three times to see in the theater, uh, Back to the Future. It's just an amazing film. And uh, in the classic opening scene, Marty McFly, is played by Michael J. Fox, is in uh, this basement. He's got a massive guitar amp for his electric guitar, probably the size of a doorway. He's got his jean jacket on, and it's the mid-'80s, so the collar is flipped up. He's got his wayfarers on and straps the guitar on, and... You know, going to play an open E chord, power chord, and pulls his pick, strums that chord, and there's so much energy in the amp, it literally launches him backwards off his feet, remember? Into these shelves, and all this stuff's falling down, and the camera pans in on his face, and he takes the shades off. Rock and roll. (laughs) Such a great opening scene. And very influential, my friends and I all wore jean jackets with the collars flipped up, right? Today I'm going to preach about uh, the Lord being our rock. The Lord being our rock. I'm preaching from Psalm 62. And in Psalm 62, uh, the writer emphasizes three times that it's the Lord who's our rock. It says in verse 2, God alone is my rock and my salvation. Verse 7, He alone is my rock and my salvation. Verse 8, God is my rock and my strong refuge. God is our rock. In the Old Testament, especially in the wilderness, uh, rocks kind of played a role of sorts. You know, when you're a kid in the play and you give the really good kids the lead roles and the kids that are the leftovers, you, you know, you're a rock. You stand over here, right? Uh, but in the Old Testament, rocks sort of had a major role. And uh, in the wilderness, you may remember, um, the Israelites were in the desert. There was no water at one point. Not a good place to be. And remember, Moses struck a rock and it split and waters gushed out enough for everyone to have as much water as they needed. Um, shepherds, when sudden storms would come out of, out of nowhere in the wilderness, there weren't a lot of trees, so they would try to huddle the flocks under rocks for to have a shelter from the storm. 
And so Psalm 62 talks about the Lord being our rock. You could also translate rock as fort. I talked with the kids for a second about forts. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, um, I had a friend across the street named John Greca. John was a trip. And uh, John and I decided we wanted to build a fort. It was the spring of fifth grade, so we met at the cafeteria at lunchtime, and we came up with our plans, and we literally ran home from school that day. And there were some new subdivisions being built near where we lived, near our neighborhood. So we went to the scrap pile, and we dragged plywood and shingles and just, hey, let's grab this, grab that. Just grabbed a bunch of stuff, went to his backyard in the woods, and uh, we took a bunch of our dad's tools without asking first. Bad move, but anyway, we took their tools, and we built the fort. And it was a real marvel of architecture. It was an amazing fort. And um, the problem was when you walked in, um, you didn't want to stand up because we used really long nails for the shingles on the roof. (laughs) So if you stood up, you might end up with a nail in your head. But we were thinking, you know, safety first. So we had football helmets at the entrance of the fort. (laughs) So you put on the helmet before you go in the fort. And, uh, of course, the first severe thunderstorm came. And what happened to the fort? Right? So we didn't know what we were doing, and it had no foundation. And we didn't bother rebuilding it because our attention had turned to building bike ramps. But uh, that's another story uh, for another time. Sometimes uh, we try to build forts or shelters in our life, and some storms are just too big. Sometimes circumstances in our life come and just level what we've built. Just like that. And sometimes we need a rock, we need a fortress, we need a fort in our lives. So I'm going to be preaching about that today. In uh, 1975, Bob Dylan released uh, Blood on the Tracks, which is, uh, I think, one of the most amazing albums ever. And uh, it's an album that he wrote uh, as his marriage to his wife, Sarah, uh, was falling apart. So there's a lot of um, longing, a lot of regret, a lot of yearning, pain expressed in the lyrics of the album. Toward the end of the album uh, is one of the songs called Shelter from the Storm. Beautiful song. And it has a whole lot of verses. I'm just going to read two right here. I was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue and the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes, blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. That's what he wanted in his life as his marriage was falling apart. He wrote a very beautiful song about it. Now, sometimes when we have those stormy seasons in our life and we long for that shelter, some of us try to rise up and kind of be our own shelter, try to be our own rock. Uh, Nietzsche called this being der Übermensch, right, the overman. And uh, it was Nietzsche who said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And... uh, as a brief parenthesis, my, my daughter turned me on to a Kelly Clarkson song that she sings that. It's, it's a great song. But anyway, not a great view of life, all right, even though it's an amazing song. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so some of us think, you know, I can handle it. God doesn't ever give you something that's too big for you to handle. You ever heard that? Not from the Bible. Not helpful, right? Some of us try to be our own rock. From Kelly Clarkson, here's a smooth segue. Simon and Garfunkel, all right? Simon and Garfunkel, 1966, their song, I Am a Rock. Some of you may remember this one. Don't talk of love. I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock 
I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my womb, safe within my room. I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And sometimes when we go through rough times, you know, some of us might want to just withdraw, just kind of tough it out. But that doesn't necessarily work either because a lot of times the storms come from in here and in here. And you can't run away from that. That's why so many people struggle with anxiety. In the New York Times about a month ago, Daniel Smith wrote an article about the prevalence of anxiety in our country. Listen to what he said. From a sufferer's perspective, anxiety is always and absolutely personal. It is an experience, a coloration in the way one thinks, feels, and acts. It is undeniable that ours is an age in which an enormous and growing number of people suffer from anxiety. Listen to this. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders now affect 18% of the adult population of the United States, or roughly 40 million people. And this anxiety is nothing new. I've been reading uh, Dostoevsky's notes from the underground lately. I don't know why I'm reading Dostoevsky in the dead of winter. It's not exactly a pick-me-up, but anyway, I am. Um, and it's, it's sort of the rants and ramblings of a bitter, retired, middle-aged civil servant. And, uh, but it's very, very insightful to the human heart. Listen to what he says at one point. Everyone has reminiscences or memories uh, which he would not tell to everyone, but only to his friends. Uh, He has other matters in his mind which he would not reveal even to his friends but only to himself and not in secret. But there are other things which people are afraid to tell even to themselves and a very decent number of such things is stored away in their minds. In other words, we can't run away from what's here and what's here. Bill Maloney, the singer-songwriter, once said, uh, the heart is the one place where you must answer the phone. Sometimes looking to others, uh, we try to do that instead. We look to ourselves to be our own rock in the storm and it doesn't really work because we can't run away from what's here and here. So sometimes we try to look to other people, especially family members. This happens a lot. Uh, Another illustration from the New York Times because sometimes other people will let you down, right? This was an article, a very moving article, written by a woman who had been disinherited by her recently deceased father, unbeknownst to her. Here's what she wrote. No one in my family saw it coming. When it came time to deal with the will, they panicked and pretended it was missing. This was an effort, they said, to protect me. But it turns out you can't keep a daughter from reading her father's will. The truth came out weeks later when I got the family lawyer to email me a copy. My father had put my mother's name on the deed of the house, made her the beneficiary of his investments, leaving the rest of his estate to my three brothers. It was an act accomplished in a single sentence. I leave no bequest to my daughter for reasons known to her. My first response was to laugh. My second response was to cry for weeks. I was devastated every time I thought of being disinherited. Sometimes that happens. She was in her 40s, going through a rough time in her life, and her dad dies, and she finds out she was disinherited. Right? And, and this experience can be really common when we look to other people to be a shelter in the storm for sometimes the exact opposite happens, right? Share a story from my childhood. When I was nine years old, uh, fourth grade, fall of fourth grade, um, my grandfather came to visit. And my, my 
I grew up mostly in Northern Virginia, and my grandparents lived in Colorado, so didn't see my grandparents a whole lot growing up. My grandfather came to visit, and a big, burly guy had fought in World War II with General Patton's Third Army, Battle of the Bulge. He's one of these guys that he walked in the room, and everybody, like, the attention was on him, like a huge presence. Now, I idolized my grandfather. And I had self-confidence issues, so it's one of those things where I really wanted his approval, like, big time. So I went to the soccer game and played my guts out. I played so hard, wanting to, to make a great impression for my grandfather, right? And I didn't play that great. I just had an off game, and we lost, and it was really disappointing, but, you know, whatever. I tried my best. I walked to the sideline, and I walked up to my grandfather and was waiting for his words of hopefully affirmation. And he looked down at me, and he said five words. Lousy game, Dave. Lousy game. And he walked to the car. And I remember thinking, i got, I got to play again for him another time, and I'll do better next time. There was never a next time. That was it. He died a few years later. And I don't share that to get sympathy because the reality is every single one of you could get up right here and share something very similar. Every one of you could. Because when we turn to others to be shelter in the storm sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work out at all. Right? People can be fickle. Psalm 62 meets us right in that place. Describes the fickleness of other people this way. They bless with their lips, but in their hearts, they curse. Today, we might refer to people like that as frenemies, right? And Psalm 62 meets us right in that place of anxiety, right in that place where we need shelter from the storm, where we need a fort, where we need a rock. And the reality is that all of us you know, fail to be that for other people because all of us are riddled with sin and anxiety. And as I got older, I learned about my grandfather that he, was, he had a truckload of pain in his life. So he was operating out of that. You know, you get perspective as you get older. So I don't begrudge him for that. And all of us operate from those places. And that's where Psalm 62 can be so comforting, emphasizing again and again, and it's the Lord who's our rock. It says, God alone is my rock and my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. God is my rock. That's the good news. Jesus is the rock of your salvation. It's not up to you. And it's not up to other people. It's up to Him. And He came through. Jesus, the Son of God, was no stranger to anxiety. Throughout his earthly ministry, he was hounded by critics, undermined by religious leaders, scorned by people in his hometown. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his anxiety literally reached fever pitch and he sweated drops of blood. And as he went through that, Jesus did not try to be his own rock or island. He did not try to be the overman. And he didn't find shelter from anyone, not from the disciples, certainly not from the Romans, not from the religious leaders. Instead, in his suffering and death, Jesus became the rock of your salvation, your fort, your shelter from the storm. And Jesus' death is enough. One of my favorite Christian writers is Brendan Manning. Uh, He was a speaker and writer, and his health is failing. So uh, he wrote his last book, a very moving memoir, called All is Grace. Highly recommend it. Toward the end of the book, he says this. My message unchanged for more than 50 years is this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody 
is as they should be. It is the message of grace. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin, wraps him up, and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. Grace that is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. God's grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Back to Shelter from the Storm by Bob Dylan for a moment. One of the last verses is about the crucifixion. In a little hilltop village that gambled for my clothes, I bargained for salvation and they gave me a lethal dose. I offered up my innocence and got repaid with scorn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. See, Jesus died on a rocky hill called Golgotha as soldiers gambled for his clothes. And in the same way in the Old Testament, the rock in the wilderness was broken and water came out for the Israelites. Jesus, the rock of your salvation, was broken on the cross so that the living water of eternal life would come gushing out for you. Jesus died for the anxious and the disinherited. He died for the isolated. He died for der Ubermensch and for the underman. He died for those of you whose forts have been leveled by the storms of your life. He died for those of you who have been literally knocked backwards by the amp of your life. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's indiscriminate compassion. And his death is enough. And of course, Jesus was raised on the third day. The tomb that was hewn out of rock could not contain the rock of your salvation. And today the risen Lord freely offers you himself to be your rock, your shelter, to be your salvation. Come in, he says. I'll give you shelter from the storm. Amen.